want to find your place in your Bible at Revelation chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 12, not chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 12. We covered uh, the first two churches, the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna. You saw that we were motoring along with great speed last week. And uh, we're going to move about that same speed this week. None of you got that, so that's okay. We pick up with the third church. These are the churches that received the revelation that comes from God to Jesus, to the angel, and ultimately to John, and it's handed down to these seven churches. If you're looking at them on a map, we don't have the map up tonight, but if you're looking at them on the map, they work around from left to right, counterclockwise, or clockwise, I should say. Uh, that's clockwise, yeah. <laughs> work around clockwise um, in a horseshoe pattern. They're, they're, all these churches are on our major trade routes. Uh, it made it easy for this, this message then to go to other places. And ultimately, it gets recorded for us here uh, in the inspired scriptures, the canon of scripture that, that we have is the last book of, of our Bibles. But in verse 12, we pick up with the message that God gives to the angel of the church at Pergamos. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let me just refresh your memory. I believe that the angel is most likely the pastor, that there is the possibility that each church had an angel assigned that was there uh, as God's messenger to that church, but more likely the angel represents the pastor. This is uh, the church, one of the seven churches that we're looking at. And, and you notice that we get, first of all, well, we do, we do have the map. There we go. Thank you for the map. You see the map, how it works counterclockwise, or like work clockwise. Counterclockwise would be the other direction, wouldn't it? Works counterclockwise. And then if you'll give me the five words. Did, did I mess up again? What did I say? It doesn't matter what I said. Forget what I said. What you want to remember are these five words. There's a pattern that develops out of each of these descriptions of these seven churches. The counselor will be a description that's given to us, something about Jesus, something that it tells us about Jesus. There'll be a commendation. Uh, there'll be chastening or what I would call correction. There'll be some counsel. This is what you need to do. And then there'll be a challenge. And that uh, is from Dr. Hel Harry Harold Wilmington. It's not my, the uh, alliteration is not mine. But this pattern develops and you see it in all of these churches. So who is the, the counselor here in verse 12? He's the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. He goes on in the next verse, and he'll give what is the commendation. But the description of Jesus here, he has the sharp, two-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth. Uh, I want to remind you that that sword is a metaphor, a Roman metaphor for power. It's a Roman metaphor for the right to rule. Uh, it's a metaphor to remind us that Jesus is not only the living word, that Jesus speaks the very word of God. And the word is coming out of his mouth. As a matter of fact, a little later in the Revelation, he will speak the word, the sword will come out of his mouth, and he'll destroy the enemies that rise up against him. It's not as if he has to get in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, it is that the, by the word of his mouth, he's able to destroy his enemies. But here, you see the word of God coming out of his mouth and he's speaking. It's a figure of speech that shows that Jesus has the right and the power over all things, even the Roman government. He has the power because he's sovereign. And so Christ speaks the word of God. He embodied 
the Word of God because He is the very Word of God. Now you see the commendation in verse 13. He says, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Twice in verse 13 he says, where they are is where Satan dwells. That's a pretty severe description, wouldn't you say? In this city, there was, uh, there was an altar to Zeus. It sat on a high hill. It could be seen from nearly every area of the city. There was also a temple there that was dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor. And so when he talks about you're there dwelling where Satan's throne is, he's either talking about that altar to Zeus, maybe about that altar in that temple to, to the Roman emperor. And for that matter, there were many different gods that were worshipped in a lot of these different places. But specifically, he tells us about a man who was a faithful man who was a martyr. His name was Antipas. Uh, he was a faithful martyr, a witness, what the word martyr means. He was a witness. Um, he held fast to his name, to the name of Christ. He didn't deny the faith even in the days. They, as a church, didn't deny the faith even in the days of Antipas. Now, we don't know a lot about Antipas. His name means against all. And so it appeared as if, because of the message he was declaring of the gospel, it appeared as if he was against all, apparently. And all were against him. But tradition, and I always make sure to clarify that, tradition says that Antipas was tortured to death. He was seared alive inside a hollow brass statue in the form of a bull, which was heated until it glowed white hot. Can you imagine dying in that fashion? And yet, here is a man who was a faithful witness. And even this church is notified as being people that didn't deny the faith, even though they were living in the city where Satan's throne could be found, uh, either because of the altar of Zeus or because of the worship of the Roman emperor. We move along in verse 14. He's going to give the correction, the, the chastening. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. I mentioned it last week. I'll mention it again this week. We're not going to talk like we did about it last week, but you'll find it interesting as you read through these different churches how many have sexual immorality mentioned as part of the deviation from the word that God had given to them, from the faithfulness they were supposed to be rendering to God. It involved many times this sexual immorality. But specifically, he says, you have some that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Do you remember the doctrine of Balaam? Uh, Balak was the king of Moab, and he wanted to curse. He wanted Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And every time Balaam tried to do so, God kept him from doing so. But then Balaam advised Balak to get his women to intermarry with the men of Israel. And the result would be that they would end up turning the hearts of the people. Just like with Solomon, who married many foreign women, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. That the result would be that they turned the hearts of the people, many of their hearts, away from the Lord. And that would bring the curse. That would bring the judgment of God upon them. 
Well, there's somebody in this city of Pergamos who's holding to that same doctrine. It's a doctrine of compromise. It's a doctrine of compromise uh, with things that are not true. It's a doctrine with compromise with the pagan culture in which they lived. It's a, it's a doctrine of compromise. And it's unfortunate that we find that kind of compromise even in our churches today, don't we? Uh, we're compromising uh, doctrinally. Uh, the things that we've believed for uh, generations suddenly are, are no longer the end topic, and we're compromising. We're compromising in ways with the pagan society in order to be less offensive. We want to be more relevant, and sometimes being more relevant isn't being more righteous. And here was the church that was commended. But I want you to notice, he goes on here. Verse 15, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. That's a pretty strong phrase, isn't it? Things I hate. You do notice if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, these are the words that are spoken by Jesus. Jesus says the things about the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans are things that I hate. We met the Nicolaitans earlier. We met them in the last week in the study. And they're linked together with the same kind of compromise with idolatry and with immorality. And God says he hates that kind of compromise. He hates those kind of concessions that we make with the world and the world's morality and with pagan doctrine. And so then he gives them his counsel, verse 16. He says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow, that's... Uh, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? He says, repent. Turn from this compromise. Turn from this pagan morality. Turn from this doctrinal error. Turn and come back to the truth. Uh, the reality is that with God, there is no such thing as a new morality. And with God, there is no such thing as an aberrant doctrine. We're either rightly dividing the word of truth or we're not. We're either staying pure and holy, morally pure and holy, or we're not. And yet the Bible tells us repeatedly that we're supposed to be a people that morality, sexual immorality is not even to be once named amongst us. And yet your children are tempted by it. That's my, that's my clock. That's how I know what time it is. Your children are tempted by it on their phones every single day. I think the statistics are something like uh, 60 to 70% of the men in uh, the average church congregation uh, peruses pornography at some point, on a regular basis at some point. Um, and yet the Bible says it's not to be once named amongst us. And here was a church that had aberrant doctrine. They were compromising with the culture. Uh, they were living where Satan was. It was a tough place to be. They had somebody in their midst who had stood against this, and the result had been that they had died as a martyr. And so you know, everybody's thinking, you know, that could happen to me, and yet God instructs them, I, I intend for you not to compromise on the truth of my word. Verse 17, he's going to give the, the counsel here. He goes on, he who has an ear to hear let him hear what the Spirit says. Not the counsel, but the challenge. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, that's another term for a believer. To him overcomes, I will, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. 
And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives. Now this manna and this stone, these are another way of God saying, I'm going to invite you into fellowship with me. You stay doctrinally true. You stay morally pure. I'm going to invite you into fellowship with me. The hidden manna. Uh, you remember when Jesus talked about the bread of life, that he was the bread of life? He came down uh, like the manna of the Old Testament. He came down. If you eat of him, you have eternal life. Uh, he is the hidden manna. And in fellowship with him, he satisfies us. In fellowship with him, he provides for us all that we need. The fellowship that we need comes through him. In this stone, this white stone, is an interesting little concept. A white stone was given to a person at the acquittal of a trial. It was also given to the winner of an athletic event, like the gold medal we've been watching. It entitled him to certain privileges, and it gave him uh, the opportunity to be hosted. That white stone would have a name engraved on it, and that name engraved on that stone became as well like an admission pass. So you begin to see what he's saying here. The manna, the fellowship, you've got to partake of the bread, the bread of Christ. And that's where the fellowship and the, the fulfillment in life comes. This white stone, you've been acquitted of your sins. And your name has been written on this stone. And it's now your entrance pass to come right into my very presence. Do you see that? To come right into my very presence and to have fellowship with me. And aren't we thankful for that opportunity that God gives us to have that kind of fellowship? He's given us his approval. He's given us an invitation as a believer to come into his very presence. And think about it. He puts our name on it. Um, you know the Lord knows your name? By the way, this may be a new name that he gives you. <clears throat> and think about that for a moment. If this is a new name or this is your name... When you named your children, what did you do? Did you just throw a book up and let it fall down and wherever it fell open, you said, that's the name. You, you probably sat down with your husband or your wife and you all argued through a bunch of names. You might have gotten a baby book full of names. You seen those books full of names? And you went through or you thought of some family member. I, I remember Mary and I were talking about naming our daughter. There was one name that I liked, but every time I thought of that name, I thought of this particular person. And I didn't want to go through the rest of my daughter's life thinking about that particular person. You know? You know what I'm saying? Those names, what, here's the point. Those names were, were chosen with, with great caution and with great love. And the Lord writes that name on that, on that white stone that indicates that you've been set free, that you've been forgiven, and it's an invitation to come into his very presence. It's your ticket to be able to come into his very presence and to have fellowship with him. And that name, that new name that he's given us is a name that he has chosen for us and one that is precious to him. And so he writes to the church at Pergamos. We move uh, then to the fourth church, the angel of the church in Thyatira. Verse 18, and to the church of the angel, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So the counselor, what's his description? He has eyes like fire, he has feet like brass. What do those two symbols indicate to us? There's judgment. He's coming in judgment with this church. Uh, he is the Son of God. 
Uh, and I love that phrase. He is the Son of God, but he's coming to this church in judgment. Uh, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass. Uh, brass and fire throughout the Bible are used as symbols of judgment that are coming. Now he's going to offer them the commendation. He said, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience, your endurance. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Hey, this is pretty good so far. He's watching their works, their love, their service, their faith, their patience. He knows that they're doing more now than they were doing before. This is his commendation to them. But then I want you to notice the correction of the chastening. Verse 20, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit, and here it is again, sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, it's unlikely that her name was literally Jezebel. Uh, some of you ladies have thought of your husband's former girlfriends, and you said, that old Jezebel. And you used her name uh, as a symbol, Jezebel that is, as a symbol for how you felt about that other person, right? That old Jezebel. Uh, you remember Jezebel is the wife of King Ahab, the, the most wicked of the kings of Israel. Uh, she was taken up with idolatry. She was taken up with immorality. She was taken up with all of the evil that you can imagine. Um, you remember on the occasion that Elijah uh, flees from her? Uh, so you, you can see the, the, the wickedness of this woman. And Jesus writes to this church with chastening, with counsel. And he says, you've got a woman in your church who's teaching uh, something that's false, She's teaching something that's, that isn't true. Uh, she calls herself a prophetess, and she seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So I'm going to stop here for a moment, and I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit if I can do that. My first question is, why is this woman teaching in the church? That's my first question. You say, teaching in a Sunday school class? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, can I just be honest and tell you that I'm a complementarian? I believe that men and women have roles to play within God's church, but those roles are different and unique. And the one role that God says that a woman cannot fulfill is the role of teaching authoritatively the Word of God when the body of Christ gathers together, like we're doing right now, when the body of Christ gathers together. They cannot be the pastor of the church. They cannot be the elder or the bishop of the church. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 uh, says that, uh, Paul says to Timothy, I don't allow a woman to teach. That's authoritative doctrinal teaching. I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And then he goes on to tell her how she's to conduct herself within the gathering of believers. Now, I realize that that's not a popular thing to say. By the way, this is live streaming, so I'm in big trouble. It's just who we are. Um, there, there are roles that women can play within the church. For instance, 1 Corinthians 11 indicates that women can pray in the church. They could prophesy. Uh, prophecy is not the same as the authoritative teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Prophecy was a special message delivered from God, but the message of the prophets, according to 1 Corinthians 14, had to be evaluated by the prophets. 
But when it came to being the pastor, 1 Timothy 3 is pretty clear. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing. He has to be, with all the character qualities that are listed there, he has to be the husband of one wife. I don't think a woman can do that. Well, <laughs> in the sexually perverted society in which we live, a woman can become a man so she, you know, I don't want to go there. Uh, it, it's crazy. Um, he has to rule his house well. Who has the responsibility in the home of overseeing the family? It's the husband. It's the father. It's the man. You say the wife doesn't have a role? Absolutely she has a role. But ultimately the first person going to answer to God is going to be the husband. How did you lead your family? And so, you know, I'm asking the question, why is this Jezebel, this woman called a Jezebel, why is she being given the opportunity to teach authoritatively in this congregation when they're gathering together? As far as I know, they didn't have life groups like we have. They didn't have Sunday school classes. I'm not even opposed to, in a Sunday school class, a woman teaching, a, you know, a mixed couples class. What I'm opposed to, what I think the Bible's opposed to, is a woman fulfilling the role of pastor and standing in the pulpit and proclaiming to the body of Christ in the authority of the Word of God, preaching as a man preaches. And they have a woman there like this, a woman who is leading people astray. Part of what she was doing is she was encouraging the people to compromise again, compromise. That's a pretty common word, isn't it? Isn't it? To compromise with society around them. They had these monthly feasts that were held with the false deities, from these false gods at these temples. And Christians were supposed to not go to those meals. But not going to those meals could affect their work, could affect their pay, it could affect their whole lives if they didn't go. And this woman said, it's okay, just go on anyway. It's sort of like saying, you know, they can't affect your spirit, you're just taking your body and involving your body in these things. They're not affecting your spirit. Well, this woman caused them, at least some of the people, to compromise. And God said, that's, he said, I hate it. God doesn't look favorably on it. He says, I have a few things against you because you allow, now hear the words, you allow. You allow this. That woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, to go down to those temples and eat the food. Yes, it's cheaper down there. And yes, they can enhance their future possibilities with their work and with their pay and, you know, in their careers. So go down there and compromise with them. It's okay. It's not affecting your spirit. You're only involving your body, and it can't hurt you. And this woman brought these people into compromise. Why didn't somebody stand up and say, that's wrong? It's awful quiet in here. Verse 21, and I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. I don't know if you read that verse the way I read it, but I see grace in that verse. I gave her time to repent. One of the biggest churches in America just recently started ordaining women as pastors. Many denominations have been doing that for a long time. 
that one of the biggest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention just started ordaining women as pastors. That's a compromise. That's a compromise of the Scripture. That's a compromise of what the Bible says. That's a, comprom- that's a compromise of the complementarian approach that God has laid out for us. We don't get to make this up as we go. We discover what the Scripture says, and then we practice what he teaches. Are you all with me? Not all you ladies are with me, but that's okay. I love you anyway. Love me as well. Would you do that? Hey, listen, if you can't love me as, uh, you, you know, as your friend, you have to love me as your enemy. You've got to love me one way or the other. Now notice, if you will, the correction of the counsel. He goes on in verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. To cast somebody into a sickbed is a Hebrew idiom that means that he's going to punish the people who compromise with her, and they'll experience various types of illnesses. You know, we don't talk about this a lot, but we probably should stop and talk about this, that God disciplines his children. Anytime you preach eternal security, once saved, always saved, you are sealed by the Spirit of God as the child of God forever the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. But when you preach eternal security, you should preach the other side of the coin, which is God's chastisement on his children. And what happens in 1 Corinthians 11? They come to the Lord's table uh, observing a, a, a love feast prior. You know, everybody's bringing sort of like a potluck dinner kind of thing. Everybody's bringing food so that everybody should have something to eat. Those that are poor have something to eat. Those that have lots bring extra so that everybody has something to eat. But the rich get there. They gorge themselves in the food. Nothing's left for the poor. And then out of the love feast, they're supposed to be observing this uh, observance of the Lord's table that symbolizes the unity of the body of Christ when there is no unity in the body. And what's the result? Some of you are sick. Some of you sleep. (laughs) That's not like you do when I'm preaching. (laughs) Uh, To sleep means they're dead. God disciplined them. Think Ananias and Sapphira. That's a pretty straightforward discipline, wouldn't you say? That's pretty quick discipline. <laughs> um, I'm thankful that God extends patience to us. Uh, but in the early church, that pure church, I mean, Ananias and Sapphira lied to God, and God struck them down. And that's what he's saying to this woman and to all of those who are participating in the compromise with this woman. I'm going to cast you into the sickbed. You're going to go into great tribulation. If you don't repent of your deeds, there is chastisement and punishment that's on the way. Look at verse 23. I will kill her children with death. And that means all these people who follow her teaching, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. You think God is serious about this matter? To follow in her footsteps is to be her children. He's not talking about literal, physical children in the sense of giving birth to children. Well, spiritually, she's giving birth to children, but not physically giving birth to children. They follow in her footsteps, so they become her children. And the result is they suffer the same consequences that she suffers because she has misled them. Then you notice verse 24. He moves along here. 
to his counsel. But, I say, but, but, but to you I say and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine. So there's not everybody in the church compromising. And who have not, who have not known the depths of Satan. You haven't compromised with all that's going on around these pagan temples as they call them, I will put on you no other burden. And I'm sure they were thankful to hear that, don't you think? Verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. In other words, you be faithful. Those of you that haven't compromised, you be faithful. You hold fast to this truth. It might not be popular, but you don't compromise it in the process. And then comes the challenge, verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And he promises that when he comes to rule, that we're going to have a role to play in his rule on this earth. Notice verse 27. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, and I also have received from my Father. And he says, and I will give him the morning star. You know who the morning star is? Jesus is the morning star. He says that he'll give the pure in Thyatira the morning star. That's a promise, again, about fellowship with Christ and about the eventual privilege of ruling with Christ in his kingdom. But Jesus is referred to as the star. The only star in a church should be Jesus. Now comes, I should say, the challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you still with me? I have 10 minutes. Let's look at Sardis, verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Sardis was the capital city of the province of Lydia. It's in the Hermas River Valley. It's approximately 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. In the city, there was a temple to Artemis, the goddess of love and fertility. The city was known for its woolen and dye industries and its jewelry. And there's a woman in the book of Acts who's well known as being from this city. What was her name? Lydia. She was a seller of purple. And that's where this dye came from from the city of Sardis. He says their reputation far exceeded their reality. They had a, a good reputation. He says, you have a name that you're alive, but I see beyond the externals, and I know that you're dead. That's a pretty serious uh, statement to be made. I mean, there was, in Sardis, very little difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Does that... Does that does that scare you that we would be a church where people would walk in and they would say, you know, the way he acts on Monday is not much different than the way I act. We're all pretty much the same. We talk the same way. We use the same language. We go to the same places. You know, we live the same fa in the same fashion by the same values. I mean, there should be a distinction, shouldn't there? And this church had a name for being alive, but he says, you're dead. There's really no difference you know, at the core of your being between a believer and an unbeliever in Sardis, they'd taken conviction out of their message. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether to stop here or not. 
They'd taken the offense of the cross and they'd done away with it. You know what we need more of? We need more conviction. I'm not talking about man-made guilt or shame. We need more conviction of the Holy Spirit where God is doing his work on the hearts of men to show them their condition so that they'll run to the arms of the loving Jesus. We need more of that kind of conviction. We need more of the preaching of the cross. When churches are taking down the cross, want to look as little like a church as possible, to look as much like a theater setting as possible, you know, how you're seated and those kinds of things don't matter that much, but the cross matters. The message of the gospel matters. The offense of the cross is real. There will always be people who don't like the message of the cross. It's a slap in the face of their pride that they have to admit that they are incapable of helping themselves and have to be helped by the, by the Jesus of the Scripture who died for our sins and rose again. And do you see what he's saying to this church? He said, I know your works. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You're dead. You've given up the message. You've given up on conviction. Do we pray for people to be convicted when they come to church? Do we pray for God to use us to share the gospel in a way that brings conviction? It isn't your job to convert anybody. It isn't your job even to convict anybody. It's your job to deliver the message. It's God's job to convict and convert. But do we pray for God to use his word to bring conviction to the hearts of men? We've basically done away with the altar, you know, the, the altar where you, where you run to and you kneel and you pour out your heart before God. I'm not proud about that. But shouldn't there be those kinds of moments of brokenness? When we fall before God on our faces, crying out, Oh God, forgive me, for I have failed you and I have sinned against you. God, I am your child, but forgive me. Where is that kind of conviction? Strangely absent too often. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect, complete, mature before God. He says there's things. You've got you to wake up. To be watchful means to wake up. You've got to wake up. You've got a little bit that's still alive, but it's already, your church has already got death all over it, and what's left that's living is about to die. Wake up. Sometimes I feel like that's the message we need to preach to today's church. Wake up. The church will die if we don't recognize that we need the convicting power of the Spirit of God and the message of the cross preached clearly. He continues in verse 3. He says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, if you're not going to pay attention, you're not going to wake up out of your lethargy, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will, know the, you will not know what hour I will come upon you. In other words, I'm coming in judgment to you. If you don't wake up, 
But notice verse 4. You have a few names even in Sardis. You have a few people that are there who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He goes on, verse 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. To, to be clothed in white garments is to be pure, to be faithful. It's a veiled acknowledgement uh, of their prosperous wool industry and the dye industry that was there. It is a symbol of the victory and the purity and the righteousness and the blessedness that God wants us to have in our lives. That robe that he gives to us, that purity that he gives to us. By the way, you never want to present your righteousness to God. Your righteousness is always filthy rags. We want to present, when I stand before God, I don't think it works this way. But if I stand at the gate and God asks me what is the reason for me to get into heaven, I'm not going to plead my righteousness. I'm not even going to bring it up. I'm going to plead the righteousness of Jesus. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Notice verse 5. He who overcomes, that's a believer, shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, a couple of things. We've got to talk about this book of life. A little later, we'll see not only the book of life, we'll see the Lamb's book of life. <clears throat> but when he says, I will not blot out his name in the Greek language, it's a strong double negative. It's like saying, I will not never blot out his name. He's saying something positively. He's saying, this is not something that I will ever do. I will never blot out your name. But what about this book of life? And I think the best explanation, it'll be in your book if you purchase the book. You're going to purchase the book, aren't you? I've got to pay for them somehow. I think the best explanation for this is what Warren Wiersbe, Dr. Warren Wiersbe gave. And I'll just read what he says. It's in my notes. It would appear that God's book of life contains the names of all the living, the wicked as well as the righteous. Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8 suggest that the names of the saved are written in the book from the foundation of the world. That is, before they had done anything good or bad, by God's grace, they have been chosen in Christ before the beginning of time. As unbelievers die, he says, their names are removed from the book. Thus, at the final judgment, the book contains only the names of believers. It then becomes the Lamb's book of life because only those saved by the Lord Jesus Christ have their names in it. And that's certainly one of the ways in which the book of life can work. Do you get what he's saying? Everybody's name is written there, but not everybody's name is going to be kept there. As people die, if they're unbelievers, their names are erased out of it. So that at the end of time, when you're standing before God, the Lamb's book of life contains only the names of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's one of the ways of understanding the book of life. And then he finishes out, he says, he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I'm going to save the last two churches till next week because when we get to Laodicea, we need to spend a little bit of time uh, because probably more of our churches fit into that pattern than any of the other patterns that are there before us. Is everybody with me? We cover those other two churches and then we move 
into chapter 4 that takes us into heaven and then takes us into the future and some of the things that are yet to occur uh, that are yet uh, future events, prophetic events that are to occur.